0: Good morning. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, Any sinners in the house this morning? You can raise your hand. That's pretty good. Any fools in the house? Raise your hand. Oh, it's a little slower, but that's pretty good. That's if you're not a fool, you're free to leave. You don't need this. So that's that's good. Uh, We're preaching through uh, a sermon series called Proverbs. We usually uh, preach through whole books of the Bible, but we're doing in Proverbs here is actually um, a little bit different. We're taking about, uh, I think it's seven weeks, seven weeks, right? Seven weeks to go through it. And the first two weeks are actually kind of introductions to wisdom. This week I'm preaching uh, Proverbs chapter nine, which is essentially a summary of all of book one of Proverbs, which is Proverbs 1 through 9, and then next week Luke is preaching on uh, the heart and caring for the heart and cultivating the heart, what it looks like to keep your heart, and then we're doing uh, four different topics that relate to uh, our culture, what's going on right now, and so if you're kind of saying, why are we starting in Proverbs chapter 9, it's because I'm summarizing the beginning of wisdom. So that's kind of what we're looking at the next handful of weeks before we get into Advent, which will close out our year. That's where we're headed. It's kind of a, a, a different take for us, but it's going to be kind of fun. I'm looking at this uh Proverbs chapter 9 thing, and you know, the whole, like, fools. For some reason, I hear about uh, being a sinner, and I'm not, like, emotionally, like, set off by that. I'm like, yeah, sure, I'm a sinner. That's fine. I kind of grew up my whole life hearing about how I was a sinner, and I need grace, and so being told that I'm a sinner is not really offensive to me. Uh, So if someone told me, like, you're a sinner, don't you know that? I'd be like, yeah, so what about it? But if someone told me, hey, you're a fool, I'd be like, oh, gosh, you know, I don't, that word's a little more pointy for some reason and it it just because it's not just a moral thing but it's kind of like a general sense of living thing but you can't you can't really look around in the state of our situation and not think man this world lacks wisdom Um, I'm reading a bunch of Eugene Peterson right now and he says this which kind of resonated with me the puzzle is why so many people live so badly not so wickedly but so stupidly (laughs) I go man isn't that the truth You know, hearing people's hot takes on things, what's going on, the things people do. I know we're sinners. I know we we serve the flesh, but like why do people do so many dumb things? Why do I do so many dumb things? Why am I all about that? And that's kind of something we're pretty much all aware of. I could go into a room pretty much of any people, you know, Christians, non-Christians, Jews, Muslims, atheists, whatever it is, and go, who here wants to be a fool? You know, and you get no hands that go up. Because everybody wants to be wise. It's more like one of the things that... I think it's a universal desire. We all want to be wise. I don't, I've never met a person who desires to be a fool unless it's like gonna make them money in a movie or something like that. But generally, people don't wanna be fools. They don't, but then why, why, why is everyone so foolish? Why do I do foolish things? Why do you do foolish things? And we, uh, a lot of cultures have had I think all cultures have had a kind of a way of dealing with this uh, wisdom deficit we have. You might have grown up in a house where there's kind of proverbial sayings, you know, household isms. Like, my house grew up, and I was texting my siblings about it. What are some of the things that dad always said? And the number one thing they all texted back was, even stupid knows pain. That was like the, you kind of like, let me, let me understand Seth and all his problems so you can know that I was... Raised with that as my worldview you know even stupid nose pain that 's like a wisdom saying, and it 's kind of silly because it 's kind of ridiculous and it sounds really bad. But you think about like that applies to training a dog you know that 's how I train my dog that 's all I need to know, even stupid nose pain, you know you make it hurt bad enough they 'll stop you know and but then but then also it, it applies in more serious situations to like people engaging in destructive behavior when it hurts bad enough they 'll stop doing that, hopefully even stupid nose pain, but you kind of recognize that wisdom is not. Uh, promise it's not even a command but rather it's just kind of generally true and so we enter into these proverbs we have to recognize that they aren't promises they aren't commands but they're wise sayings that help us see the way things generally are just like look both ways before you cross the street you don't have to do that but it's a pretty good idea but we also know people who didn't look both ways and they crossed the street and they made it across just fine so it's not like you have to do it, but it's a general truism. So it's not universally true, but it is generally true. So don't get kind of all caught up if you're reading Proverbs going, how come this doesn't come true every time? It's because it's about tendencies, probabilities, generalities, not specific things, and they're not promises. So when you're getting into this. But think about why do we do foolish things? Why does that happen? When I think about the word philosophy, you know, I was a philosophy major. And I asked my wife about this, when you think philosophy, what comes to your mind? And she said, old men, white beards, robes, up on a hill, thinking, you know. <laughs> uh, I think that's pretty true. You think philosophy, that's what, kind of what you think. Like these people who are away from society, up on a hill, kind of like waxing eloquent about things that like don't really implicate ordinary life. But like the word philosophy, philosophy, is just Greek for love of wisdom. It means loving wisdom. And so we talk about this love of wisdom, but like this kind of Greek conception is people who are far off thinking deep thoughts, but rather what we have here in the wisdom tradition in the Old Testament is not people who are far off thinking high lofty thoughts, but people who are um, fathers and farmers and rulers dealing with the messy stuff of life. They're really involved in the nitty gritty. And this picture we get here of the way of wisdom calling and the way of folly calling I remember when I was uh, in college and I was dating my wife before we were engaged and she went to U of A, you know, folly, foolishness. <laughs> and you know, she did the best she could with the information she had and she made the wrong choice. Um, but she went to U of A and I went to ASU, you know, you know even, you know, broken clocks are right twice a day. I went to ASU and I, we're, we're dating long ter- long distance and every now and then I drive down, take her on a date and then drive back. and. Uh, there was one time I'd planned this like really uh, what for me was an elaborate nice date We were going to get burgers and fries at Zen Burger and it was you know I was looking forward to it because those aren't just cheeseburgers Those are like Happy Cow cheeseburgers, you know, and I'm, I'm stoked about it and driving down and I'm really hungry and I'm in college and I forgot to eat lunch because I'm You know a college student and we're driving down and I'm about halfway there and I start to get like really hungry like whatever whatever severe suffering is to a 20 year old college student I was like very hungry you know and so I'm like feeling it and I and I see a sign and it says you know Burger King 10 miles and I'm going oh no you know like the you know and, and then I'm thinking now I'll be fine I'll, I can I can get a, I can hold it off until I get there and I get there and Burger King five miles you know I'm thinking it's starting to hurt and Burger King next exit and then you know I'm sitting down at dinner with uh, my girlfriend now wife and I'm having to explain to her why I'm not that hungry and it's because I, on the way here, I got a double cheese, two double cheeseburgers and fries. <laughs> and she's like, you know, doesn't get it because it doesn't make sense. You know, it's not rational. It's foolish, and it's foolish. But this is kind of the, the picture we get: is there's this better thing waiting, but foolishness is calling, it's calling out, and you know, it's fundamentally irrational. And you see this read with me, um, Proverbs nine, verses one and two. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. It's perfect. It's complete. It's an institution. It's ready. It exists. She has slaughtered her beasts. She's mixed her wine. She has set her table. It's ready to be devoured. It's this beautiful house with a beautiful table with a beautiful meal and it's ready right now. This is kind of showing to us that wisdom is not something that you create or you you come up with on your own. It's not um, make it up as you go, but wisdom exists. It is there and it is ready. And here we have it in the scriptures. You know, it's, it's put together. It's ready for you. You can have it when you want it. You can feast whenever you want to. And it calls out. She sends out and she calls. Come on in. Partake of wisdom. But on the other flip side, you have this other thing going on. You have this other calling. The Burger King wisdom calling you. It's less good, but it wants you. It want, and you're hungry, and there's something inside of you that it resonates with. You know, the woman folly is loud. She's also calling out. She's seductive. That word seductive is why we are foolish people. If we think that we're going to think our way out of being foolish, we have a wrong view of what it means to be human. See, humans are not fundamentally thinkers. We're fundamentally lovers. That we're not tricked with intellectual reason into doing foolish things, but our loves are disordered. That we're seduced. That folly calls out, foolishness calls out, and we're being called to from both sides. Wisdom is calling, foolishness is calling, which way will we go? This is kind of the way that uh, the book of Proverbs sets up the, pr- the problem of wisdom versus folly. Not that we need to think the right things, not that we necessarily even need to like, get the right information, but our hearts are disordered in different directions. What we're going to see here in this book is uh, kind of three things in this chapter. We're going to see three persons. We're going to see two fears and one solution. But all in this context of the fact that wisdom is calling and folly is calling. And even right now, every single person in this room is being called out to by wisdom and folly simultaneously. The question is, which one will we listen to? Which call will we respond to? Who will get our yes and who will get our no? Let me pray, and we're going to dive into this passage. God, you tell us in the book of James that any of us lacks wisdom. We are to ask, and it will be given to us with abundance. And, Father, we ask for wisdom now. Let us find it in your word, and I pray that your spirit will write this on our heart. Amen. Amen. So there's three people here. First one is the simple person. This is fool number one. We're going to see two fools. Simple most basically means naive or young, lacking prudence, knowledge, discretion, sense, understanding, and wisdom. This is the most basic audience of the book of Proverbs. Solomon is writing to his sons, these young men. And kind of one of the main reasons that this has been such a big book for the history of the world is that you kind of think like here's the basic idea. I'm going to target the young men because like statistically young men are the worst people in the history of the world. They always are. Like you go, who's ruining the world right now? Young men are ruining the world right now. That's who it is. Men ages 14 through 34 in general ruin things. That's what they do. They, they think they're incorruptible. They think they're invincible. They do crazy, dumb things. You know, you think, who is ISIS? It's young men. You know, who, who started um, the Nazis? It was young men. You think, who is asking out your daughters on dates? It's young men. You know, it's, it's young men are, generally speaking, the worst, and that's like statistically true, it's, I know I'm one of them, and preaching to the choir, that's okay, but the reality is, if you can get a young man to be wise, you can get anybody to be wise. Like that's, that's kind of the idea here, and so like, if you're a young man, know this is written for you because you're part of the worst people in the world, and that's okay, that's okay. I'm, I'm one of them, and I, I'm part of that. My, my mentor used to tell me, if you're under 40, then you're an idiot, and I hated him for it, and it was kind of, it was the worst. But it was true, you know, and so, but it doesn't mean other people aren't also fools. It just means that if you're younger 40, you're certainly a fool. So, so there's, they're simple, they're naive, they're young, lack prudence, knowledge. But the, the simple person is presented not, it's not a negative thing. It's not like a scoffer or sinner and the need, there's like a need to change. It's just a present reality. You lack experience. You haven't lived much life. You haven't fought the good fight yet. You haven't really been through a ton. And this is why there's no real kind of clear black and white on when simpleness ends, but rather it's, it's a general naivety towards the reality of what's going on here. We see this in uh, the very beginning of Proverbs. Of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence. So prudence is the ability to make decisions based on long-term outcomes, not short-term outcomes to delay gratification, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge, and discretion to the youth. This simple person is the one being called to by Lady Wisdom and Woman Folly. Uh, Lady Wisdom says, she has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in town. Whoever is simple, let him turn and hear woman folly, almost the exact same thing. She takes a seat on the highest place of the town, calling to those who pass by, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And so you got to get this picture of this young man standing in the middle of the street, kind of deciding, am I going left, am I going right? And wisdom calls, and folly calls. And so the main reason that here that we have wisdom as personified by woman and foolishness as personified by woman is because this is written to young men, and they get what it's like to be drawn towards women. That's kind of like where they're living right now. You know, biology at this point is trumping all theology. They're kind of just in the middle, kind of going like this. And so there's this woman calling out on this side, woman calling out on that side. But it's important to recognize here that this call of woman here is not in... in, in at all, necessarily, even a, a, an erotic picture. It's not about um, sexual attraction. Rather, what God is doing here is He's reverting back to and pointing people to the metaphor that God's people are His bride, that He's married to them that they're to be a light to the nations, that Israel is supposed to be in the center of the world, this place where they could show their neighbors, their surrounding neighbors, they're, they're like the center and there's all these nations surrounding them and Israel is supposed to be in the middle showing, being a light to the nations. Here's what it's like. Look at what it's like to live under the good and gracious reign of the creator of all things. You can look in and see If you look at Israel, what it's like to be loved by the creator of the universe. You can see what it's like to live under a good king. All the nations need to do is look into Israel. And so what's happening is Israel is supposed to be inviting their neighbors into their home to show them what it's like to live under God's reign. But instead, what happens is the opposite. Instead of the bride of Christ, being a picture of invitation and hospitality, nations come partake, nations come in, come on in, let me show you, let me see what the goodness of God is, the opposite happens. Israel is in their home and they're looking at the other nations surrounding them, being attracted to what they have going on. It's pictured like they're going to bed with the other gods, like they're leaving their house and going to the other houses. So this isn't really about necessarily even these young boys experiencing this attraction, but it's primarily about the nation as a whole being tempted to see that what the other nations have going on is better than what they have going on at home. You see this really clearly in Proverbs 7. Turn with me in your Bible just one one page back probably, Proverbs 7. I'm just going to kind of bounce through a couple verses here. want to kind of highlight this for you. So this is, picture the, this the bride of Christ or the the spouse of Christ being called by the neighboring nations. Come to our house, come to our house. Leave your home and come to our home. I'm gonna read, um, starting in verse one. My son, Proverbs 7, 1. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablets of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call to your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. So if you have an ESV like I do, there's an 8 next to forbidden and a 9 next to adulteress. You can see in the footnotes in the bottom that uh, forbidden could mean strange or uh, adulteress could mean foreign. It's kind of a word play going on there in Hebrew. It's these forbidden nations. God said, I am gonna set you up as light for the nations so that you can show them how to live. Instead, Israel is being captivated by what's going on in the other nations, going, what am I missing out on that I need to be a part of? Read with me in verse six. So this is Solomon teaching his son. For out the window of my house, I've looked through my lattice, and I've seen among the simple, perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Verse 10. And behold, the woman meets him, Dresses a prostitute, wily of heart. She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Verse 13. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. She's saying, I know what we're going to do is sin, but you believe in grace, right? Come on over. And now I've come to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I found you. Verse 19. For my husband is not home, he has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. Verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him, and with her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught in fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. This picture of Israel in God's house, walking about, called to be wise, and you have calling out, come to my house, my husband's not home. I know you you have a good father, but there's perfume on my couch. I know you have this, come on over. So the simple is being called out to. You see, what makes the simple person simple is that he doesn't know. Verse 23, he does not know it'll cost him his life. At the end of, verse, of chapter 9, verse 18, he does not know that the dead are there. This isn't a threat of judgment for this young man. This is a description of reality. That the people who give in to folly are dead even while they're alive. They're zombies. They might externally have the appearance of life and life to the full, but internally they've already gone to Sheol, which is just the burial grounds. They're in the ground. Here's the question I have for us this morning as we sit here reading about this simple person. Do you think that you are at risk? Do you think that? Or do you think you're above temptation? You know, I hear all the time when some famous person or some famous pastor or some whoever it is person gets caught in adultery or launders money or fill in the blank, whatever it is, and I think, man, my self-righteous heart, my flinch goes like this. I would never do that. That's folly. Because I would do that, and you would do that. That you are being enticed presently, right now. That the woman folly is calling out to you. That the neighbors that you're around, who are not in fellowship with God the Father, you are tempted to be like them. You are tempted to leave the household of God and become a part of what the neighbors are doing. Just as Israel was tempted to be like the nations, you are tempted to be like the nations. Just as Israel so often was pulled and enticed to believe that the grass is greener outside of God's household, so also me and you are pulled and enticed and seduced. Do you think you're being seduced right now? Do you think that? Because you're at your most dangerous when you think you're not being seduced. You're in the worst position when you think, I'm just a neutral, decision-making person. I see clearly this isn't about my heart. I'm just, I can just decide right and wrong all the time. Rather, you are being called out to by folly. Come nearer, come nearer, come nearer. Burger King is saying, turn in here. Get Rich quick games are saying, turn in here. You might have started a diet, but that cupcake is saying, come on over you might have known I shouldn't go out drinking with that person but they're saying come on over you might know that neighbor you do not need to be in that house and they're saying come on over you know your spending's out of control but the bogo is saying come on over whatever it is you are being enticed into folly at all times and in all places and if you don't recognize that you are in the middle of the street walking and wisdom's calling and foolishness is calling you will perpetually accidentally drift towards foolishness Wisdom does not happen on accident, foolishness does. Person number one, the simple. Person number two, the scoffer. A mocker, literally a scoff. Experience has hardened their heart and clouded their judgment. There's a callousness to them. They're closed off, defensive, bitter, reactive, slow to listen not attentive to God. In the Old Testament, the scoffer is the worst of all people. Psalm one says, blessed is the man who walks not according to counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There's like an escalation thing going, or a de-escalation thing going. you think wicked people are bad, sinners are bad, scoffers are in the worst place. They're so hardened to God, they just mock him. They can't receive feedback. They don't really... Uh, they're not open to instruction. They're just closed. They're hardened off. Read with me um, in verses 7 and 8. Proverbs 9, verses 7 and 8. This is how you know if you're a scoffer. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. So one of the tests that Proverbs gives us to decide whether you're a scoffer or not is how open you are to constructive feedback or negative <coughs> criticism. So you can ask yourself, how earnestly and thankful are you to receive and take from people criticism and negative feedback? Are you the type of person who, like, oh yeah, I can just walk up to dad and be like, hey dad, I think this. Or are you the type of person who like your household trembles and has to pray for weeks before they bring up to you the smallest thing because they're terrified of your emotional violent reactions? Are you the type of person who immediately someone gives you opportunity to be a better follower of Jesus and you at first push back and say, you don't know who you are, you don't know who you're talking to? Or is there a softness to you to receive and to be changed by the people of God as they try to encourage you in your walk? I was discipling a group of guys at one time and I wasn't doing a very good job. But all of them went off and were committing some pretty serious sins together. I'll just leave in the blank there, whatever that is. And one of them at one point kind of experiences conviction and goes, Guys, this is not good. We need to stop. And a couple of them kind of go, You know, you're right. But one of them in particular was mad at that guy for six months and used his opportunity to critique the way that this guy brought him feedback. You know, next time, do it like this. Next time, do it like this. If you would have done it like this, that would have been better. Who do you think you are telling me this? And it's like receiving the feedback became an opportunity to say, next time you bring this up, here's, let me give you 10 pointers on how to give me feedback better next time. And it's like a way of kind of shielding yourself. So when someone comes to give you feedback, correction, reproof, do you react defensively? Do you use this as an opportunity to give them feedback on their feedback skills? (laughs) Or do you receive? Because the wise person receives. The wise person is skillful. Wise most basically means skilled. They're good at life. They're full of skill. Just like someone who's good at building a wall, that person is a wise wall builder. Um, this wise person's wise at building a life, skillful, clever, perceives, sees clearly. Experience has softened their heart, so you see that the scoffer and the wise person are both experienced, but experience has turned one into a cynic and has calloused them, but one experience has turned them into someone who sees more clearly, and they're softened. Slow to speak, they're perpetual learners. They're open. They're attentive to God. Read with me verse uh, 8 and 9. Reprove a wise man and he'll love you. Thank you for that feedback. I'm sure that was hard for you to want to give that. I'm sure that made you nervous to try and criticize me like that. But I appreciate you going our way to do that. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. So the wise man presumes and assumes and has this posture of, of seeing that he is at risk. I might do foolish things. I might be off the beaten path. So I need to be open to instruction and feedback. Otherwise, I will become a scoffer. They're open. They're not closed. This is encapsulated really well in what William Shakespeare said. The fool doth think he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. The wise man gets it. I need help, I need instruction, I need feedback, I need correction. Jesus has not come back yet. I do not have all these things figured out. I'm a man in process. I'm a woman in process. I do not need to go either direction like that. So this litmus test you get here in the book of Proverbs on who is wise and who is foolish has everything to do with how you receive feedback, how you receive correction, how you receive rebuke. That the more holy you get, the more wise you become, the closer you follow Jesus, the more you seek out and yearn for and desire and want people to correct you. You don't become more holy and then need less feedback. You don't become more wise and then desire less mentors. You don't become a closer follower of Jesus and then need less help. Rather, the further down the path you get, the more you become aware of your own neediness, the more you become aware of your dependence on people and on God, and the more you're softened and welcoming and desiring people to speak into your life. It's important here to kind of notice that this isn't a black and white thing. There's not people who are scoffers all the time or people who are wise all the time. Rather, these kind of reflect postures, not positions. So it's not like I'm either wise, boom, or I'm either a scoffer, boom, or I'm either simple, boom. Rather, it's this posture of openness and receptivity to critical feedback and instruction. So it's not a position, it's a posture. It's a way you live your life. It's an an environment you're going. So kind of the question remains then, okay, got it. I want to be open to feedback, but yet (laughs) I still somehow get emotionally triggered and set off. I still drift into foolishness all the time. What do I do? And what Proverbs teaches us here is that there's these three persons, but there's these two fears. And these two different fears actually shape our affections and our heart and the ways that we go different directions. So here's the first fear. This is the fear of missing out, or as we millennials say, FOMO, or hashtag FOMO. It's it's this belief and this position in life that there's always something good happening and it's not right here. (laughs) There's this good stuff happening out there, but I am right here, and I'm missing out on all of it. This uh, is kind of encapsulated in 917. Stolen water is sweet. The water that other people have is sweeter than your water, and you don't have to work for it or pay for it. You just need to take it, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. So kind of the the parents here of this fear are uh, voyeurism and anonymity looking at what other people have, and being by yourself. That if you avoid both of those two things, you'll be in really good shape. Anonymity and voyeurism. What we kind of see here, especially in this social media age, in this age we look at this fear of missing out, um, there's this increased anxiety and depression among young persons. And I think a lot of it, the science that I've read on it, that's science as a... a loose term the opinions i've read online uh have, have say a lot about how this is it has to do with the increase of social media consumption which has become generally pornographic and by that what i mean is this some people are sharing too much of what they're doing online and some people care too much to watch about what those people are sharing with themselves online it's social media it's pornographic it's consuming other people's lives it's oversharing your own life. What are people doing around me? How can I see what they're doing? It's unhealthy concern. What's the water they have? This is what Israel's dealing with. They're standing in the middle, going, "All these other nations have all these things going on, and all I have is this. All I have is fellowship with God. All I have is a relationship with the Creator of the universe." All I have is a Heavenly Father who loves me unconditionally, regardless of my hard-heartedness. All I have is a people of God who point me to the scriptures. All I have are the feasts and the festivals of God who wants to remind me and show me that all good and perfect blessings come from him. All that I have is the people of God loving me and supporting me and pointing closer to God. All that I have is reality, living within it, being instructed how to live within it, and all that I have are the words of God to me personally saying, here you go, Seth, let me show you the best way to live in the world I created. That's all that I have, and the other nations must have better stuff than me. So I'm gonna listen to the woman, Folly, who says, look at what these other people are doing. Look at the money they're spending. Look at the things they're eating. Look at the women they're with. Look at how many women they're with. Look at the fun, look at the, and it's this fear of missing out. What are other people doing constantly? Stolen water is sweet and ready and secret is pleasant. So here's what we need. To drive out this fear, we need the expulsive power of a greater fear. We need to fight this fear with fear of the Lord. Here's the uh, next fear. Proverbs nine ten. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So this phrase, fear of the Lord, it's four words in English. It's one word in Hebrew. It's actually a bound phrase. It's one thing. It's it's not like fear of the Lord. It's fear of the Lord. It's one thing. You could uh, put dashes in between it. Fear dash of dash the dash lord fear of the lord and it's this phrase occurs about 138 times in the old testament and fear of the lord is the center of what it means to be a good follower of yahweh in the old testament in all the wisdom literature job psalms proverbs ecclesiastes all approach this question of what does it mean to be wise from different angles and all arrive at the same answer to be wise is to fear the lord to fear the lord is to be wise it's a cycle Watch this. Every single book uh, of wisdom concludes or has this highlight of this. Right in the center of Job, Job twenty-eight twenty-eight, And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So what is the fear of the Lord? Here we see that fear of the Lord is absolutely linked to repentance, turning from evil. Do you turn from evil? You fear the Lord. Do you fear the Lord? You turn from evil. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, at the very end of the book, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. What does fear of the Lord do? Job 28 teaches us it causes repentance. Here, Job 20, here Ecclesiastes 12 teaches us that fear of the Lord causes us to obey the commands of God. Psalm 111, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Again here, beginning is not like start, finish, beginning. It's like foundation beginning. You're building a house. A house of wisdom. You build on it. It's the beginning, but everything rides on it. You don't progress from fear of the Lord. You stand on it at all times, but it's where you have to begin. To those who practice it, have good understanding. Even earlier in Proverbs, it says, My son, if you receive my words, making your ear attentive to wisdom, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find knowledge of God. So you begin with fear of the Lord, but then the more wise you become, the more you understand fear of the Lord. So the path towards fearing the Lord more is fearing the Lord more. It's a cycle. You fear the Lord so you can be wise. You understand wisdom so you can fear the Lord more. This is the the centerpiece of Jewish wisdom is that we would fear the Lord. But the question is what does that really mean? What does it mean to fear God? I thought we're supposed to love God. I thought God was kind and slow to anger. He is all those things. But the centerpiece of this is fear. Kierkegaard called this a trembling, adoration. Eugene Peterson gives us a picture of it like this. The moment we find ourselves unexpectedly in the presence of the sacred, our first response is to stop and silence. We do nothing, we say nothing. We fear to trespass inadvertently. We're afraid of saying something inappropriate. Plunged into mystery, we become still, we fall silent, all our senses alert. This is the fear of the Lord. We don't so much lack knowledge, we lack reverence. To walk into the presence of someone far more important than you. I remember when I was uh, gonna ask my wife to marry me, I had to go to her father's house to ask for permission. You know, I go over there, I know the guy, he's a nice guy, he's a kind person my palms are sweating, my heart is racing I'm pretty sure he's going to say yes it would be really surprising to me if he didn't but I'm still, there's, a, there's a healthy nervousness there I'm about to ask a man for something holy I'm about to meet him on his territory where his rules stand and I'm about to in a place of vulnerability go can I have something that's yours it's a healthy fear Similarly, kind of thinking about fear like this. When I went to ask my wife to marry me, I had the ring in my sock in my underneath my suit. You know, I usually don't pay a lot of attention to what's happening three inches up my ankle or my socks. Usually you kind of put them on and forget about them until the end of the day. But I was aware of every, like, breeze. You know, I was probably walking a little weird because I was, like, in there, and I was aware that like there's an awareness because I was afraid. There's a healthy fear that if I lose this, I can't afford another one. You know, so like I, I and if I lose this then I don't get a fiance at the end of the night. And so I'm like really like aware so this this fear leads to an awareness or an attentiveness. Similarly, my wife is very afraid of cockroaches, you know, which is irrational, just to be clear. That's not a rational fear. Cockroaches cannot hurt you. They can't do anything to you. The worst they could do is, like, make you waste time chasing them around. But there's this fear of them. You know, if there's a cockroach in our house, it's like everything stops and you're aware of it. You know, (laughs) and and you walk and you're looking at it and you walk and you're looking at it and you're aware of what's going on. And I didn't really understand it, but I kind of recognized, you know. So her fear drove her to a hyper-attentiveness, a hyper-awareness of what's going on. And I didn't really recognize it until the other week I was sleeping and I felt this crawl across my back. And all of a sudden I went from not afraid of cockroaches (laughs) to a terrified of cockroaches. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever crushed a cockroach in your bare hand before, (laughs) but I do not recommend it. (laughs) It So I leap out of bed, you know, like with the the legs coming through my fingers, you know. <laughs> but then, you know, you know we, anyway. <laughs> I was the next like very the next weeks. I was very aware of every time my sheets moved in bed, you know, <laughs> you know, because it was reminding. And and so this is fear. F- fear that creates awareness. Fear that creates attentiveness. So to fear the Lord is really to attention. It's, he commands your attention. He draws your attention. You look at him. You can't look away. He, he captivates. This is fear of the Lord. But we fail to fear the Lord all the time. We drop out of awareness. We no longer see him. We no longer sense him. Every foolish decision you've made, every sinful decision you made, probably began with you dropping out of awareness of God's presence probably began with you losing fear of the Lord so what do we do now what Solomon in the Proverbs has this power to diagnose to expose to reveal but what do we do and this is why I'm thankful that I can read my Bible as a Christian and not only as a Jew because the Proverbs point me forward so we see what has happened This is a really good point I was about to make. There we go. <laughs> so it's three persons, two fears, and one solution. And here's that solution. It's the wisdom of God in the flesh. Solomon could say wise things, but Jesus Christ came in the flesh and was the wisdom of God to us. First Corinthians 18, 24, and 30 say this. For the word of the cross it's folly to those who are perishing. In the eyes of the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ is folly. God cannot take on flesh, live a sinless life, die a substitution of death on the cross, and rise from the dead. That's foolishness. As Christians, we say, I know why you think that's foolish, because it sounds ridiculous. But to us, it is a center of wisdom. Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us the wisdom of God. That we can read Proverbs and have our minds filled with all of what it looks like and things like to be wise, but if we really want to see a vision of a wise life, don't look at Solomon. He blew it. Don't look at David. He blew it. Read the Gospels. You wanna see a vision for wisdom? Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because Christ is the wisdom of God incarnate, the wisdom of God in the flesh. He comes on our behalf and succeeds or we fail. He's wise when we're foolish and he dies in our place on the cross. And so we as people, we can fear God and not be ashamed and filled with self-hatred because of our failures, but we can fear God and be aware of and in his presence and instead be motivated by grace to walk and obey him. When we recognize that wisdom is not just an abstract thoughts or ideas, but wisdom is what it looks like to live as a Christian, as a believer, in the context of nations and neighbors who are calling out to us, drawing us away from exclusive loyalty to God the Father. That ultimately, wisdom is Christ-likeness. Wisdom is following Jesus This is what it means. The most basic and the most wise thing, the wisest thing you will ever do is believe the foolishness of the gospel and obey God. That's the wisest thing you'll ever do. Believe the gospel and obey God. When the rubber meets the road, this is what it looks like. You believe that Christ entered into the world, died a death, rose again from the dead, and now by his spirit is with you and you can fear him and be aware of him and believe that the gospel is sufficient and now you can walk in obedience to him, conforming yourself to his commandments, repenting, turning from evil. This week when you walk out of the store, you're gonna see ads on TV, you're gonna see billboards, you're gonna have neighbors, you're gonna have these competing visions of the good life calling out to you saying, come, follow me, come, follow me, come, follow me. Lady Folly cries out loudly saying, come, follow me. But you're also going to have the Lord Jesus Christ better than Solomon saying, come, follow me. And as a believer, every single day you choose again, every single moment you choose again to follow closely after the one who gave himself for you and died for you. Which call are you going to respond to? Foolishness? Or wisdom. Let's pray. God, you're good to us. Thank you for this uh, wisdom you've given to us in the scriptures. Pray that you can make us aware of the ways that we are being seduced by the world around us but I pray that we can also be equally aware of the way that you are seducing us. You're drawing us in deeper into love. You're calling out. Let us be a wise people. Amen.